Hi, community, and welcome to Long Story Short, the show about money, news, and data for global development professionals. We are broadcasting live from the DevX DC office in DuPont Circle, and I'm Kate Wathen here with our head of news, Paul Harris. Hi, I'm very pleased to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. We are going to talk through the five big stories of 2018. But if we're going to be honest, when we tried to first come up with this list, Paul, it just ballooned into about... 20 topics? Yeah, we could talk about the whole world. We could talk about the whole world. But we're going to talk about five big themes, starting with money, which is basically a theme every year. And if I had to think back to 2017, if I had to think of a theme that kind of encapsulated the emotion of 2017, (laughs) like connected with money, it would be anxiety. I mean, everyone just didn't seem to know where things were going with budget cuts, with Brexit, with Trump coming into the White House and just what that meant. In 2018, there seems to be a pivot to a sense of resolve about looking for other sources of developing, development financing for some of the world's biggest issues. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, just going to go back to 2017, I think that uh, it certainly was a year of anxiety. I don't think anyone had a really good time in 2017. And when it came to money, it started with, yeah, it was great fears of budget cuts, that, you know, swinging cuts that were going to have a huge impact. But as 2017 played out, it didn't, it was more complicated than that. Uh, certainly in the US, uh, Congress became uh, very much an ally uh, to a largely bipartisan degree of the aid community. And the budget cuts that were so feared it became more complex. Uh, you know, is the fact is that Congress controls the budget and Trump couldn't quite get his way, though this is still yet to play out. But what that impact has, I think, in 2018 is that it certainly clarified everyone's minds that, that you have to uh, focus on other sources of income as well. And obviously, there's an awful lot of, of those sources of income out there. One of the big conversations that I just hear everywhere, you know, from the UN General Assembly and the World Economic Forum is this pivot to looking at private finance sure. as a mechanism to spur development. But how do you reconcile kind of the business interests at play? Because, you know, businesses just have different motivations for development than, say, governments or you know, other kinds of donors. Yeah, I mean, it's important to think there's, there's lots of different types of, of private finance. There's, there's a blended finance where you can sort of come along with a pot of development money and then go to the capital markets or other private sources of finance to sort of double that money up, the sort of billions to trillions idea. There's, there's the private market in terms of social entrepreneurs uh, who are seeking to do good but seeking to make money at, at the same time. And then there's these sort of giant philanthropies which um, have got their money from the private sector like Gates and the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and then are sort of become huge development players themselves. So, so there's all sorts of different types of, of private finance and they have different motivations. Some are pure profit, some are more, more philanthropy. But yeah, they all sort of basically face the same issue of, of this idea of profit and development. And I think that there's going to be two or many, many, probably more sides of, of that argument. And that's going to play out through this year and far beyond as we sort of see this sort of funding become more and more prevalent and more and more important. And I, I think if anyone sort of thought, well, I have the answer to what the profit motive means in development is just you know, not telling the truth because it's an incredibly complex uh, issue that's just going to play out over a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's exceptionally tricky because you might, ideally at some point you find the overlap and kind of business opportunities that go beyond just corporate responsibility 
you know, looking very much at development priorities as a business plan instead of just something that's good that you do. Yeah, and that's that's very much part of the of the whole SDGs. Uh, the way that that's been sold, uh, particularly by say something like the World Bank, is that the SDGs represent a business opportunity. Uh, that's quite a powerful argument to make to businesses. Obviously, it's like you know, come and do good, come and come and make money. Um, but again, I think when you get out there in the field, there's going to be just a huge amount of variety as to how that works or not. Uh, so I'm sure some schemes will be successful. I don't doubt that others won't be, and they may be not be for you know for particularly savoury reasons. It's, this is a hugely complicated field with lots of different motivations, uh, you know, which is what happens when you involve the market. Frankly, it's it's an amoral force, and you have to sort of manage it, and it's difficult. You know, one of the kind of interesting examples in this in this conversation is around education and the use of kind of private privately funded education in some developing countries and whether that leads to outcomes. I mean, we've done a bit of reporting about that. What is your sense about how that plays out as an example of these wider questions? I mean, I think that's a test case, and I think that's why uh, education is such a sort of uh, emotive uh, issue for the, for this sort of topic because and it is something we've looked at very very closely over the last year uh, at DevEx. This idea that that private firms and philanthropies can come in to some of the poorest countries in the world and get into the education system and try and improve you know education for the poorest of the poor. And on one hand, that's great, but the, the other hand, they're also seeking to make money out of that. And there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of pushback from uh, the state, from teachers unions, and they have a, a valid argument that actually some of the most or well, the most successful educational model in the world, you know, like Finland, do tend to be uh, state education systems. And they would argue that, well, it's quite patronizing to think that obviously, you know, uh, state education in West Africa is not of a Finnish standard, but that one day it probably should be. Um, but then again, the private sector can push back and say, well, look, you know, all of the, you know, these the state education systems are tragically letting down their people and we're just trying to help. And there's a, there's a valid argument there as well. So you're going to see that debate play out as we are doing, uh, particularly in, say, in the country of, of Liberia, where we're following education reforms there very, very closely. And again, this is going to play out all through the year and, and much beyond because it sort of symbolizes not only this debate about this vital issue of education for the poorest of the poor, but actually symbolizes even the wider issue of just what role the private market has to play in development. Yeah, I mean, beyond just education, as you talked about, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, really representing a business opportunity. Just thinking about the sheer trillions of dollars that it will take to make our world a hospitable and more equal place by the time 2030 rolls around. It's just a tremendous amount of money. Yeah, no, it's it's huge. But also, I guess one could argue that, that perhaps the biggest... Uh, sort of development success over the last sort of 20, 30 years has been the way that the Chinese government has lifted up the, the, uh, the wealth of its people by allowing the market to come in and do things. You can certainly argue that obviously that's led to a lot of abuses and corruption and uh, real big problems around pollution. But the fact is, you know, China has, has greatly lifted its, its pe- many hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And that's a, a form of the market, albeit a state controlled market. It's, it's incredibly complicated. So China is a fascinating area of development that we'll get to in a little bit. If the first big story of 2018 is really around financing and innovative financing for development and who's going to pay for it, when, where, the second big story is really about the securitization of aid. You know, we're broadcasting from Washington, D.C. We just watched 
President Trump and the State of the Union. So I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a bit about the comment he made, which was, you know, America is going to pivot, you know, to only giving aid to friends of America and not giving aid to enemies of America. Hard to say what that means for frenemies of America. <laughs> and can you unpack a little bit of that and you know, kind of use that as a way for us to talk about how this portends this securitization of foreign aid? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's important probably to mention that I think a lot of people, not least in uh, in USAID itself, uh, the, the department were somewhat surprised to hear Trump say that and were a bit uh, taken aback by this sudden sort of apparent linking of of aid to what even might be some sort of specific as how you vote in the UN. But obviously, yeah, that sort of ties into this idea that the aid is linked to national interest, in particularly perhaps sort of uh, defence interests. Which is nothing new. No, not new, not new at all. I mean, if you look at perhaps one of the greatest uh, development successes ever, which is, is the Marshall Plan that reconstructed uh, Europe after the Second World War, um, you know, that was not entirely, you know, without self-interest. It's the fact is that Europe in rubble, um, when you're facing up against, you know, expanding Soviet Union, was seen as a security risk. And the best way to make that not a security risk was to make Europe more prosperous. Um, and so that's kind of where the Marshall Plan obviously comes from. And actually, the Marshall Plan was only uh, popularized amongst the American public who were initially very, very skeptical of spending all this money on the I people. Would, I would note that the Marshall Plan was once referred to by very high-level generals as Operation Rat Hole. Yeah, exa <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and it, but it became popular with the US public when it was, when it was seen as anti-communist. So it was seen as, ah, we're not just making Europeans you know, happy and prosperous again, but we're actually stopping the advance of an ideology that we perceive to be a threat. To ourselves. And there are even, you know, high level people right now working in the Trump administration that have made comments along the lines of, you know, if you want to cut foreign aid, buy more bullets, that it really is, you know, development yeah. really is a tool of foreign policy and national security. Yeah, no, you, well, you mean, see that with, with um, you know, the, the war in, in Syria, for example, and the sort of migration development issues that, that come out of that, you know, that's uh, becomes, you know, that issue, that humanitarian catastrophe is clearly not just kept within the borders of Syria. It has a ripple effect across the whole world. And so we'll talk a bit more about humanitarian crises, which is another one of our big issues that we're going to be digging into. But even beyond the United States, talking about the securitization of aid, you know, you have policies that may not be so blunt in that, but kind of this aid for trade sure. that Britain is really pushing right now. I mean, how does that feed into that narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think that feeds into the narrative, which is effectively what Trump said, which is that the aid has to serve the national interest and not just in the, nat the national interest in the terms of, you know, what we've been talking about with, yeah, um, you know, sort of making people sort of happier and dealing with the humanitarian crises is obviously in the national interest to some degree, but much more narrow national interest. So Brexit's big national interest. So Britain's, Freudian slip of the tongue, Britain's big national interest is, is Brexit. And therefore, it, and we see British aid policy under Penny Morden, who's just come in, just sort of somewhat being shaped towards that national aim. So, so suddenly it's actually, unlike America, which is all about somewhat about defense and the Pentagon, Britain is all about trade because it has to somehow survive in this uh, post-Brexit world. So there's a lot of talk for aid for trade is if we do aid, you have to strike trading agreements, blah, blah, not so much on a tied aid level, but just, you know, that's the implication. And so again, so there we see a national interest policy and the aid policy is sort of somewhat being carved to fit it. We'll see how that plays out, especially because DFID has had a little bit of turmoil in their leadership with 
get people getting kicked out and people resigning and unresigning. Mm, so we'll resigned see. Resigned for what to me five hours yesterday. Yeah, five hours. <laughs> so we talked earlier. We started to kind of hint that we're going to be talking about China. Mm -hmm. And Chinese development, just the rise of Chinese aid, has skyrocketed the past few years. But it's this area where everyone is recognizing that this is happening. I mean, their investments are kind of far and wide. Back in 2015, during the Financing for Development conference, which happened in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, you know, I talked to a taxi driver. He said, you know, I've been a taxi driver for a long time, but roads are going up so fast that I'm, my routes are getting shifted. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure. You know, I can't trust which way is going to work anymore on my route. And there's not a ton that's known about it. I mean, we've started to do, or we did a series last year kind of digging into Chinese aid, but what, what is the connection between Chinese investment in Africa and, you know, national security or just, you know, Chinese policy? I mean, even it's not just Africa, it's all over the world. I mean, the sort of the flagship. Uh, sort of Chinese development move is, is the One Belt, One Road policy, which is aimed at huge infrastructure and trade-related projects uh, all over Africa and Asia and South Asia. And actually at, at Davos last week, uh, one of the most underreported, but most I think most significant stories was of, uh, of China sort of somewhat taking One Belt, One, Ro uh, one, Belt, one Road into Latin America. And it, it's, it's clear that this is you know, possibly the biggest development project in world history. And this is going to have a a huge impact development-wise, but that it's also very fundamentally linked to the rise of China. Uh, it's based around uh, trade and an extension of that sort of uh, trade and political influence. And that's going to play out over many years now. And, and you're right, it's, it's very hard to work out exactly what's going on. Uh, one reason being that unlike uh, most other uh, big nations, China doesn't have one single aid agency. It has an, a sort of bewildering ar array of ministries uh, and agencies involved in aid, but no one single coordinating thing that, that can be sort of recognized and dealt with. So there's an awful lot of, of sort of trying to divine the, the tea leaves when you, one looks at Chinese policy, and it's very, very difficult to do. Uh, we did, a, say, a big six-part series uh, uh, last year, uh, looking at Chinese aid, uh, but I feel that we've only kind of scratched the surface of it. It's something that we're absolutely going to focus on going forward because it's 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 so important on so many levels. Yeah, I mean it's just fascinating. There's been a lot of literature on, you know, how after World War II it was kind of the U.S. and the Soviets that were putting all of these investments all over in developing countries and sort of a fight for influence, and it feels like that has just shifted into China really taking that seat. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it's, it's controversial because, uh, you know, and again, the West is far from innocent in all of this, but, um, but Chinese aid is often seen as coming with an awful lot less conditions than, than so Western and other aid is when it comes to uh, human rights and possibly uh, also environmental restrictions as well. So there's a temptation on part of many developing uh, governments to sort of tap into Chinese aid just because it, it, it's easy. It's easy money to some degree. Uh, um, I just you once saw that with uh, Zimbabwe, who had a look east policy uh, under President Mugabe, uh, so that they were sort of you know it's basically sold an awful lot of uh, of influence in that country to China because unlike the West, which was putting Zimbabwe under sanctions for a lot of the time, you know China just was concerned with with business. It's all business. They don't seem to mind. They call it like a win-win situation, uh, which I think again in the West we would use, but we would use that phrase very very differently. Uh, uh, China just does tend to sort of because it doesn't want anyone commenting on its own domestic issues, it doesn't comment on anyone else's, and that 
certainly, you could say, allows for a certain freedom that is unnerving for some of the recipient countries. And makes it particularly difficult to report on. Yes, no, absolutely. So before we move on to the next big story of 2018, I did want to know that if you have any questions or any topics that you would like to see on this show, please feel free to leave them in the comments or tweet us using hashtag DevXTV. Moving on from the securitization of aid, China, and the whole world of things that we just covered, we need to talk about humanitarian crises. And that is conflict, natural disasters. You know, the world is just, there are more people displaced now than at any time since World War II. What does, like, who is stepping up to handle that? Who is going to pay for this? Who is Who are the actors that are moving into this space to really make change? I mean, I think the answer there is that everyone is trying to step up into this. I think there's, there's been a, a sort of fire alarm sent out by numerous humanitarian agencies, numerous UN bodies that, that uh, 2017 was a terrible year for humanitarian crises and that there's no real reason to think 2018 is going to get any better. You know, whether that's sort of conflict-driven, um, you know, such as in Syria or Yemen or uh, Myanmar to sort of climate change-driven droughts to hurricanes, there's, there's just a whole gamut of humanitarian crises that are going on that, uh, that need global attention. And, and the answer on funding is that uh, there simply isn't enough money out there. Um, there's a certain level of, well, it's ever thus with humanitarian uh, response. And just, I guess some critics of the industry might sort of say, well, this is, you know, the boy who cried wolf. And there actually is a wolf now, but, you know, there's a certain amount of donor fatigue. So there is there are gaps in, in funding out there. And we're going to have to sort of monitor how that plays out in dealing with these crises. Yeah, donor fatigue, obviously a huge problem, but also some of these crises, they're just, they're so complicated. You know, you might have something like Ebola, where there's an outbreak and it's huge and the whole world knows about it and it gets an immediate response, it needs to be contained. But a lot of these crises are just, if you really unpack the genesis of them, it's a mixture of poor policy, mm -hmm. climate is playing a role, you know, we're seeing you know, we're seeing areas where in parts of northeastern Nigeria are contending with famine when neighboring states are not and thinking about you kind know, of what the difference between that is. So when you're talking about the approaches to even trying to do something yeah. about humanitarian crises, it's, you know, there's the money to be sure, but there's also trying to figure out how to support the policies of governments that might not be conducive to getting out of yeah, no, it, it, it's very difficult. And actually, it, you mentioned uh, Northeast Nigeria. It is sometimes uh, instructive to look at national borders and just see the incredible differences on either side of a border. Rwanda and Burundi would be uh, another one. The most obvious one is North Korea and South Korea. So it shows you that, you know, that human actions and policies and, you know, really do have these impacts. And therefore, you know, if you want to have an impact, we'll study what works and do it. Um, obviously, I think that also then plays into, you know, try and do things in better and more innovative ways as well to sort of, uh, you know, keep abreast of changes and changing situations in the changing world that we can actually, what may have worked in dealing with a humanitarian crisis 10 years ago or 20 years ago doesn't work now. We can actually do things better and, you know, and I guess to address the sort of funding issue, ideally we can do things cheaper with better value for money as well. Yeah, but it's it's just interesting to look at also this, the breadth of humanitarian crises, but also we kind of see similar issues cropping up time and time again when there are these crises. I'm thinking about, um, you know, the Rohingya crisis. Right. 
And there are just so many aid workers and organizations working around the clock trying to do something about this. But you have, is it millions of people in Cox's Bazaar right now? Yeah, I think it's like 800,000, is it? Yeah, the, you know, trying to figure out how to handle that kind of influx of people, how to communicate with them, you know, a lot of that population. Yeah. We had a story out a couple of weeks ago from Kelly Rogers talking about how you know, this is trying to help a largely illiterate population. So finding people who know the language and can really make a difference on the ground and then repatriate 800,000 people that go over the border in just a, ma a matter of months. I mean, it's, it's one thing to just say, there are all of these crises all over the world, but thinking about the details of how you manage that. Yeah, and of course, no crises is, is uh, exactly the same as well. There's always going to be a, uh, a this sort of distinct local context to each crisis. So there are some sort of broad lessons that can be used and learned. There can be techniques that can be transferred. But I don't think uh, anything ever really makes up for the importance of local knowledge and local staff. And I think that's some, sometimes uh, something that development organizations, uh, international development organizations anyway, don't quite realize enough or, or sort of see themselves as parachuting in, trying to solve a problem and then parachuting out again. Um, whereas actually it's, it's local organizations with local knowledge who often are going to be there for the long haul, but actually know how to do things best locally, often just need the resources and the, and the help. And I think maybe that sort of shift to localization or focusing on local groups and what they're doing is, is also a valuable trend that we can probably be looking at uh, going forward this year. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there, well, there has been more and more conversation about localization and just the sheer importance of it. So hopefully that will continue into yeah, 2018 no, and beyond. Absolutely. So I guess moving from... <clears throat> you know, the crises themselves into kind of innovation and humanitarian crises and what's being done to respond. You know, innovation has been a buzzword and makes some people roll their eyes. You know, another way to look at it that I've heard is innovation is doing, doing business differently with what you already have. So we can talk about humanitarian innovation as being a different way of funding crises. You can talk about blended finance earlier, but then also innovation in tech like drones. Can you talk about some of the big kind of innovative pieces that you think will make an appearance in 2018? In humanitarian crises? In humanitarian crises. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, drones is one. It's obviously incredibly important with uh, disaster response uh, because drones can get to places very quickly that, are, that, that people on the ground can't and they can get a lot closer than a satellite can. So I think in sort of uh, immediate humanitarian response in disasters, drones are really important. All sorts of mobile technology uh, can be really important in refugee crises because it's often reported that you know when you get the, the movement of Syrian refugees and others into into Europe, one of the first things that, that most refugees, when they get away from whatever they're fleeing from, is get their mobile phones out, and so and so that becomes an incredibly new powerful tool to communicate with but also to monitor and see what people actually want and help is the idea of of cash transfers uh, in humanitarian crises whereas in fact you know this isn't blankly true but you know if, if there's if there's a, a famine as well it's rather than just going in there and trying to feed everyone you you try and give people cash and actually build local markets yeah you can because yeah because what happened is if Previously, to some extent, if you flood an area with goods, you destroy important local markets. Whereas if you put cash in there, you actually build those markets up. And it becomes far, far more efficient. And we, we uh, just did a, a story from our East Africa correspondent, Sarah Jarving, who, who went to Somalia and was reporting on how cash transfers there were helping a humanitarian crisis, which is a, you know, a climate change caused 
drought and obviously, you know, 25 odd years of, of civil war. But not only were the cash transfers sort of helping feed people in this rather efficient way, but that some people were actually just keeping a little back and starting up their own businesses. And that really was having a, a, a big effect because it gives people something to do. It, it, it sort of supports families more broadly. And, you know, it's actually people were starting to have you know, somewhat entrepreneurial success with this. And also that then ties into this idea that humanitarian response, if done smart, can feed into longer term development objectives as well, which is very much a sort of uh, aim of the sort of uh, the wider global development community at the moment. Certainly. I mean, there's just there's been a big issue with the traditional way of delivering humanitarian aid when you're talking about sending clothes or, you know, sheeting or food aid that it can just there's so much room for error. The margin for error is so large of showing up in the wrong place at the wrong yep. time or showing up in the right place with the wrong things. You know, we talked a bit about local context, about you needing to really know what exactly the needs are, what the diets yeah. are like, you know, what is appropriate. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the really fantastic work that say, like, the UN does in humanitarian response, if they're overseeing that supply chain, it can just, it can all go through with the best of intentions, but there's so much that happens between A and B. Sure. There's also like an image management thing here, which is really difficult, I think, um, and probably not talked about enough because I think, Broadly, the general public, when they think about aid, they do think of those older images of like giving out some clothes, giving out some desperately needed food, giving out some medicines. Um, whereas, in fact, if, if you showed an image of, of just giving someone a little debit card with $10 on, um, the public might react badly to that, even though that's a considerably more efficient way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, this is a big issue both you know, both internationally, but even here in the United States, I mean, there's people just give with the best of intentions because they want to be able to see someone, you know, have the jacket that they were able to provide for them and know that they're doing a good thing. But, you know, there have been instances where, you know, internationally aid planes weren't able to land because of in-kind aid or donations being on the tarmac. So it is, the cash transfers do feel like a way to solve a lot of those issues. Absolutely, but that has to be solved to the general public. And that's, that's difficult when you've got a, a, a public sort of often just hostile to some extent to aid itself. And then when you have the idea of just giving people money, I mean, it's not, a, it's not an easy sell, even though it's great policy. Well, if anyone is interested in reading more about cash transfers and wants to be convinced, there's a great report from Center for Global Development, Disclosure. I used to work there and have read that report many times, uh, and the Overseas Development Institute that really lays out some of these broader issues. So we have talked about money and financing. We have talked about the securitization of aid. We have talked about humanitarian crises. We've talked about innovation. The fifth big story for 2018 is gender inequality and gender equality. Do you want to talk a bit about that and looking ahead, what we'll be doing reporting-wise, what, where you see the story going? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously the, the Me Too movement uh, that has sprung up uh, in society at large has a ripple effect into every industry and, and our industry, uh, absolutely. And as a result, you know, we and you've played a, a huge part in this. Uh, 
have, have launched aid to, where we're going to, to sort of examine these same issues, but in uh, the global development community. Um, we've already run an awful lot of, of stories uh, about this issue, and it, it's gonna, we're going to continue through that in 2018. We're going to report on sexual harassment and sexual abuse, uh, but also like not just from exposing these, these practices, but also looking at how organizations can just do better better internal rules and in, internal better practices. And also I think it's, it's something we want to sort of talk about is the sort of wider systemic issues around gender equality that allows uh, sexual abuse and sexual harassment to happen. Right, because it's not just that, you know, women aren't safe at work, or in some cases men aren't safe at work. It's a broader issue of women in leadership or women Absolutely. being able to get paid the same much. We're talking about wage equality. Yeah. It is a wider systemic issue that kind of facilitates that kind of sexual violence. Yeah, we have, we have to look at the structures. We have to look at the system. Um, if you're just looking at individual things, uh, within that, then you're just tinkering around the edges. You have to look at systemic things. And it's complicated as well. If one looked at, at Oxfam, who got an awful lot of negative press for uh, a high number of sort of sexual harassment cases, but in fact, that was due to their uh, instituting some extremely efficient ways of reporting sexual harassment. So it's actually a good story, but it came Growing across pains. as a bad story sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's bad, obviously, that these things happen, but it was good that the way they were dealing with it. And I think it's important to, sh to, sh to show that reporting these cases isn't necessarily just a, you know, a bad scandal. It's a scandal that it happens, but it's good to deal with it. We have to be sort of uh, intelligent about the way we report this as well. Exactly. I mean, just personally, I'm all about this cleaning house moment that mm -hmm. we are Absolutely. having, um, you know, it kind of coming forward with perpetrators and talking about everything that's happening. But there needs to be, there needs to be concrete place, steps to take from here, which is why, you know, with aid to, we've just thought about a lot about this. So like, we can't just have this be a platform to bring forward the issue. Like that is so important and we will continue to do that and cannot stress how integral that is to this campaign, but it also needs to be, what are the policies that make sure this doesn't happen? What yeah. are the reporting structures that organizations can have that don't victim blame. So we have done a series of digital events answering some of those questions yeah. as well. Yeah, this is not a phase. This is something that is going to fundamentally change the way things work yeah. moving forward. So we are, oh my gosh, we're just about out of time, but we do have a couple questions. So if you can bear with us for three more minutes. We have a question from Tobias. In addition to the political division in the US, 2018 is an election year. What actors could communicate positive but also critical stories about development amidst the noise? What actors? What actors could communicate positive but also critical stories about development amidst the noise? I mean, I think yeah. I mean, I think that's very important. I think that it is hard to cut through the noise, um, but there are positive stories to sell. And again, and this sounds like overly a little bit cynical perhaps when we talked about the securitization aid, but you know, there are there are ways to link positive stories to the national interest. Like we're just talking about the idea that it's not in America's national interest um, or by bipartisan interest to help people in trouble in faraway lands. I mean, that's just a, a false narrative that can be combated quite easily. And I think uh, on a bipartisan level, I think Congress is clearly very open to that and has a long history of being open to that. I think it's the the White House and elements within the White House are the ones that are critical to that. So I think maybe it's about picking your 
your audience there, which is maybe aiming at, at these sympathetic ears in Congress rather than trying to convince the current occupant of the White House? Yeah, so that would certainly be one way. Another another thing I've been thinking about a lot is that you know the U.S. has signed up to the Sustainable Development Goals. We are responsible for hitting certain measures related to mortality, maternal health, you know, gender equality, all of these different things. So I think there is some space for a conversation about how the U.S. is or isn't hitting these targets and bringing it home that you know, yes, the SDGs are universal. And that when we talk about development assistance, I think it can make it a little bit, bring it home a little bit more to talk about what exactly it means, both in a broader perspective of you know contributing to making sure that fewer people die of malaria yeah. in another country contributes to an economy that will then make that country safer, and maybe that is in our strategic interests, like security-wise or other, but also bringing it home that we're talking about you know mothers not dying and. Yeah. You know, there are issues that we're dealing here with here in the United States that are the same in these other countries. Yeah, no, I, so I think humanizing it for people, too, is a big part. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I talked earlier about how, you know, West African governments, you know, should actually look at the Finnish education system as aspirational. And the U.S. government should look at Rwanda as aspirational when it comes to gender of, equal gender representation in parliament. We have a couple more questions. We will answer them on Twitter because we are out of time and we told you we would be done at 1230. But I want to thank everyone for tuning in. In case you tuned in a little bit late, I am Kate Wathen here with Paul Harris, the head of our news team. Next week on Long Story Short, we will be talking to Anit Mukherjee from the Center for Global Development about biometrics and the rise of digital identification, exploring some issues around that. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, anything, you can tweet us at DevX using hashtag DevXTV, or of course, get in touch with Paul or I on Twitter. Thank you so much and see you next week. Thank you.